0: Welcome to Two Guys, One Book, where two friends tackle their reading list one book at a time. Welcome to Two Guys, One Book. I am Brian, co-host with Tim. Hey. Hello. Hello, Tim. Hey. And today we are discussing Humankind by Rutger Bregman. Oh, wait, excuse me. Humankind colon, A Hopeful History by Rutger Bregman. Mm-hmm. Uh, it. This is a nonfiction book where he talks about our human, our innate human um, temperament, and what is it? Are we beasts that have been um, tamed by civilization, or are we peaceful uh, in our nature? Is our nature peaceful, and civilization civilization brings out the worst of us? That's his. Debate and his arguments uh, set forth.
1: That is, that's a good summary. And I want to ask <laughs> you why you picked this one, Brian.
0: Ah, well, I picked this because I am a positive person overall. I like to think that we all share a common decency as human beings. That we aren't just you know animalistic in our in our desires or our id. Um, that we do care about others, that we are genuinely good, um, and <laughs> this book uh, sets forth uh, a very well argued position better than I could have ever done. But um, I thought it was interesting. But no, no. So basically, I mean, we we can go into the more details in a little bit. But yeah, I feel like he sets forth a good uh, reason and uh, argument for humans being good. And I like that. And I've heard it. I heard about this through podcasts is how I heard about this book.
1: So your overall impression then is that you found it pretty convincing. You enjoyed this, this book. Well, I mean,
0: I think he had, there's multiple, multiple facets to this book. Um, I can't say that I agree with everything he said in, in this book, but I think the overall main thesis is one I agree with and thinks He did a good job of explaining. But that's coming from a person who picked this book. Tim, what was your first impression and what did you think?
1: Yeah, let me say I admired the intention of the author that, you know, (laughs) he's trying to say we're basically better than the negative uh, press that most of humanity gets and um, that we see, you know, in the news day to day. Um, But at the same time, I don't know if this was just because I listened to this audible narration where the the British author sounded a little condescending or a little too self-assured in his uh, outlook, but it kind of felt like he's cherry-picking all these examples, and, you know, he's skeptical of all these studies of um, showing how people can be, you know, bad in some ways, and then he's just kind of glossing over uh the good examples and and picking things that support his argument and um i don't know if i found it entirely convincing but i did enjoy a lot of the stories in here so i'm excited to kind of get into more of those with you
0: sure i mean you want i mean we can get into the nuts and bolts right away all right let me try to best articulate um the whole book Basically, he starts out by – in 10 seconds? Yeah, good luck. All right, buckle up, Tim.
1: All
0: right, so basically Bregman starts out by saying that humans are – he believes humans are actually good, um, that uh, he he starts off with like – the prologue of the book is about uh, World War II and the Blitz on London and how – Germany was trying to break the will of the British people, but they all kind of banded together. And then he also talks about in the first chapter of Katrina how a natural disaster hit New Orleans. And, and instead of like a lot of rioting and looting, and when everything was in, in upheaval, people helped each other out. And there was, you know, people look, uh, doing good deeds to help others get through that disaster. And he definitely makes this, the argument that um, the media and the news. Uh, especially focus on the attention-grabbing stories, which are mostly negative, and that um, sometimes we can fall for like a pl- like a placebo, but in a negative way. A placebo is something when you take a, uh, a placebo for a drug, you, you're not really getting the drug, but your mind thinks it is, so you you feel the benefits of the drug. Well, the opposite of that is a nocebo, and he talks about a nocebo meaning if we think something is negative, then it's going to then it. It's like a foregone conclusion. It's going to be negative. And then because he, he also talks about then Lord of the Flies, how that book was thought to be uh, an a exam, a examination of what would really happen if children were stranded on an island. But then he actually finds out that there was a real life Lord of the Flies in the South Pacific off like New like, Zealand, uh, n- uh, close to New Zealand or Tonga, I think yeah. was the country mm-hmm. that the boys uh, were stranded. Tongan boys are standing on the island, and then he he ultimately talks about this um, debate in philosophy between I think Thomas Hobbes and and Jean Jacques Rousseau, where mm-hmm. Hobbes thought we were all human beings by their nature are uh, bad, and that we're going to cheat other people naturally, and civilization helps keep us in check. Where Rousseau says human beings at our na- nature are nice and generous, and and civilization forces us to be at each other's throats or a dog dog world, kind of competitive, and then that's what causes us to do bad things. Um, so that's, like, the first third of the book.
1: Yeah, I would say that's a good overview. Uh, I want to talk about Lord of the Flies for a second. Cause, sure, cause sure. I haven't read it, but from my understanding, it's, like, about, you know, the kids are on an island, and things basically go crazy, and that, you know, the point is showing how human nature, when it's comes down to it, when you're stranded on an island and starving things get chaotic but he's saying that book was basically written by this guy who was kind of miserable and Mm -hmm. he gives this real life example of how the kids actually kind of banded together and learned to cooperate and survive um so i thought that was interesting it's crazy how big of an influence that book has had on culture um you know despite i completely made up yeah yeah i completely agree i
0: feel like for like you said a a made-up fiction a work of fiction to have such an impact on society without any real scientific method behind it
1: is is very interesting. It's almost like there's a bunch of people out there who want to keep pushing this narrative that people are inherently bad and it's just something you see generation after generation, you know, people, you know, pushing this narrative. Well,
0: I think the author, this author would argue that it's the people that have the power, the 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 people that have power or a lot of wealth are pushed, push this narrative because that helps them maintain their power and wealth. If people were under the impression that we didn't need structure, stru- stru- the society structured as it is to keep us all in check that we could live peaceably, just kind of doing our own thing, then we wouldn't need all this power and wealthy people that uh, pull the strings, I guess.
1: Yeah. I just that feel makes like, sense. yeah, I guess that's fair. I just feel like he kind of glosses over like, at some point, there are people who do not behave well, and, like, a small percentage of the population is going to commit, like, violent crimes. You have, like, gangs. You have war. I feel like he sort of glosses over a lot of that stuff. But then he would also say that you need to treat those people, you know, you, Like a you Dutch prison. Them, or well, yeah, Nor- or, or Norwegian, Norwegian prison. prison. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have to treat
0: them well. You have to respect their humanity still, because even... Like, you're right. There's going to be always that fraction of the population that are like, you know, sociopaths or going to do bad things. But, you know, even, but like, I would push back a little bit and say that even people that do bad things are still able to be real rehabilitated, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, I just think it's an oversimplification to say like the, for the Norwegian prison system, for example, to say like, oh, let's just do that here. It's like, there are a lot mm-hmm. of factors that make it not as, Simple, just you know, cultural norms, uh, different dynamics, the history of the a country. Just there's a lot of things that go into it, and it's easy for him to just say, "Oh, this worked here in this one case. Let's just it should be applied everywhere." And you know, that's the problem. Well, you know, I mean, yes, I agree with you, but
0: I think you know, I don't think the author is suggesting that you snap your fingers and all of a sudden the U.S. prison system is now like the Norwegian prison system. System. I think he's saying that. There are better ways to do things. And I think he's highlighting really clear, specific examples of what he thinks are good examples. You're right. I agree with you that he is not like, you know, picking some run of the mill place and saying, well, this works out okay here. He's picking like the gold standard, like a, to, to aim for and, you know, I don't think he expects everybody to get there no but I think you're you're right he does speak in in a way that's like oh well clearly you know this just seems <laughs> this is this just this works so, and it right this, and it's perfect yeah
1: <laughs> duh. no I mean generally I like his message I, I don't want to be cynical and negative I want to oh, believe yeah. this and I believe most people are you know inherently good and want to help in like bad situations um just to, I want to get my critiques out of the way here. So, right, uh right. one other thing is I feel like and let me know if you think this too, this genre of book like it seems they all just kind of quote the handful of the same like modern researchers and scientists in the field. So, I can't tell you how many times I see the names pop up uh, Daniel Kahneman, Dan Ariely, Steven Pinker, you've all know Harari. Um there's the same 10 people who they just keep quoting each other. I'm like, is this book even new or is it just different, you know, people reacting to the other person's last <laughs> book. It's just, it gets a little like weird. Like I'm in this uh, circle sometimes. Oh, sure. And I think, you know,
0: th- I think that's the author t- also trying to tie his ideas to the bigger, you know, behavior, so- social, sociology type of uh, field. But you know those guys are the the big guys for a reason too. You know.
1: Yeah, I guess I just if I'm reading a book, I want to hear like all these original ideas, and it's not like he was just agreeing with all of them. He was also like questioning things no. and liking something. So like that's totally fair. But like yeah, at I thought some he point, pushed back on yeah on something. Yeah, I'm just saying like. Let's just have a book where they don't talk about any of these like 10 people, because I'm just tired of hearing their names. Um, but let me talk about a part I do like, and let me see if oh, you okay. like it too. Uh, sure. When he's talking about the Stanford prison experiment, when he's talking mm. about the Milgram experiment, he, yeah. his basic point is that these studies were very flawed. And it's funny how popular and widely known and taught they are, when in reality, he's really questioning the motives of like uh, Philip Zimbardo and, and Milgram. They're just kind of Perhaps um, exaggerating the studies in order to kind of promote their own kind of career. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, and you think about how many like book deals and whatnot they got out of out of this thing. Um, so I thought that was a pretty good critique. What did you think?
0: Oh, I thought, yeah. I mean, I I, I find it interesting that that's the part you like. You is that, was that your favorite part of the book when he when he yeah. he knocked down those those experiments one after another.
1: I found it interesting. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I thought it was interesting how um, how I found that a little repetitive because he would he would build it one he'll build up the experiment and then he would shoot it down. You know, so basically, so for those who don't know, you know, the, the Zimbardo did the Stanford prison experiment where he had you know, like six Stanford undergrads pose as prison guards and six Stanford undergrads pose as inmates. And then, you know, he just let them basically come up with their own structures or, or of a prison and it immediately devolved into chaos. But what we didn't then the, the author Bregman examines that Zimbardo actually had more influence in how the guards acted and the guards kind of teamed up and they all, and, 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 at the end of the day, all of them, all the students know, knew that they were part of an experiment. So they kind of ate to their roles more to give Zimbardo a better experiment. So mm-hmm. it, I found that was I thought that was an eye-opening uh, revelation.
1: Yeah, it's like he basically had this outcome in mind that he was kind of striving towards and it kind of skewed the results in that direction is what it the author made it seem like.
0: And then Stanley Milgram did the experiment where he had two strangers. Well, one was a stranger or, or one was the, um, the a volunteer, and the other person was part of the experiment but the volunteer didn't know that. And then the volunteer was in one room. Trying to teach the, the the student who was in the other room by giving him shock therapy or something when he got something wrong, and the and the volunteer kept dialing up the, the shock treatment uh, at the behest of one of the people p- putting on the experiment, so that the student in the other room kept getting bigger and bigger shocks, and the and the volunteer could hear their cries of agony, but they still applied more and more shock. And Bregman, the author in this book, kind of debunks that one saying that it's not really obedience that this person is dialing up the pressure. It is more out of, um, what do you say? It was out of conformity. It was because that volunteer wanted to be a good volunteer. They wanted to do what the experiment people wanted them to do so they went along with it it wasn't that they were being ordered to do it and so they followed orders blindly they they felt like they needed to conform to the experiment which is it seems like it's
1: a subtle difference but it, i think it's a key difference you know but like when he when he's talking about like world war ii and and the nazis mm-hmm. and stuff like that like do you find that convincing that you know oh most people are good it's okay. I you mean, know what I mean?
0: Yeah, and so that part I'm still going to have to mull over a little bit because that so his his whole thing was that like on an individual level the like the the Nazis were not like craving this ideal uh, world that Hitler foresaw. They were more like wanting to Um, not let each other down, like their fellow comrades in arms, Mm -hmm. that there was more about them wanting to fit in with other Nazis than it was about following some Hitler ideal, which I kind of, but then he also said that like there was that one Nazi Eichmann, I think they interviewed and he didn't, he seemed like a completely rational man. Cause you think somebody like a Nazi who's up there, a high rank Nazi who's following Hitler and all this would be like a lunatic. But he, but when they interviewed him, he didn't seem like a lunatic at all because in his mind, he actually thought what he was doing good in the world too. So I mean, it was he talked about Nazis a lot, and it was uh, it was a lot to take in.
1: It's it's a hard topic to have like a you know an easy kind of um, analysis of what went on there, and mm-hmm. neither of us are experts in the area. No, but no, yeah, it's just like he was saying, oh, they were just you know the Germans are all about camaraderie and just fighting for each other, but it's like at a certain point, there's a line of like what is right you know and i think i think
0: he talks about that in another part oh man i got it here somewhere hold on pluralistic ignorance that's where we all go along like if everybody's doing going along with something that we all kind of just go along with it as well we kind of go with the flow instead of breaking it's tough for people to break that um that basically peer pressure of everyone going along with something, even when individually in their own head they may think, "Oh, you know what? This is messed up. Something's not right here." But they look around and everyone else is going along with it. Like the example the author states in the book is there's a there's a classroom at like some sc- university. I forget the name of the university, but the it's a psychology professor is doing an experiment and he goes in, like first day of class. He's taught he's teaching class and he's saying all these words that are just randomly generated that he that he you know wrote down beforehand and all the students are kind of like nodding and looking like they're paying attention and whatnot when really like at the end of the class he said well like did anybody really follow that and everyone was like yeah 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 but he's like i was speaking gibberish and no one no one everyone else was looking around at their classmates seeing how they were all paying attention and thought oh everyone else is getting it so i'm gonna i should get it too But then, individually, they were thinking, oh my goodness, I don't get any of this. How is everybody else getting this, you
1: know? Yeah, that reminds me of another psychological study, like the ASH uh, conformity experiment. Do you know that one? I don't think so. Um, Enlighten me. Yeah, so basically, it's like, there are uh, three lines, I think, and they had to go around the room and say, uh, there are different images that had three lines that were like of various lengths. And there was like one person who was kind of, you know the test subject and he didn't know it he's assumed he's with all these other people and they were asked to identify which line is the longest and so the people who were in on it would always like say the wrong answer and then gradually like the guy who was a test subject would be, be like confused and then he would start like giving the wrong answer as well so oh really i think yeah so i think it's interesting like the drive to consensus and conformity i think right. that's real and i see that too just in like day-to-day life and in like um you know at work it's People really seem uh, inherently predisposed to just try to find consensus, which, you know, generally I think is a good thing that we want cohesion and cooperation. But I can see the dark side of it too, being conformity and, and that kind of thing, groupthink. Yeah, right? yeah, all right, absolutely. Groupthink is would be right up there
0: with one of the downsides of that. And I think that was another point of it in his book. He like I think he tries to make later is that don't be afraid to not be nice. Like we we all want to be conform and be and not ruffle feathers and all this stuff but if if something is out, amiss or something is out of order like speak up and like try to to rectify it because you might not be the only one thinking
1: that you know i thought that was a good lesson to take away from this book too yeah no that's a good point so what else can you name a section or part that you were drawn to that you like well i liked i mean i liked the end end of it i guess okay when so you're not talking about the part where he's talking about how they didn't fight on Christmas during World War One. I. I mean, yeah. I mean, that part was okay. That just felt a little cheesy to me. I'm sorry. It's well, like, you know it's happened. It happened. See, the point is, like, it's not that it happened or didn't happen. It's, like, there's still this terrible, violent, you know, event with, like, mustard gas and all this stuff. And it's just, like, okay, they didn't fight on this holiday. But, like, you know, why... It's still like 99% of this event was horrible, right? Right. But he he would
0: say that that would, like, given that, that Christmas Eve miracle of everyone laying down their arms and, like, singing carols together, if the soldiers had their way, the war would have ended right there. That it was the powers, like, it was the people further away. The front lines is where soldiers meet, and they realize that they don't have much different from each other, that the British and French are fighting for their fellow comrades, just like the Germans were fighting for their fellow comrades. Mm -hmm. And so on the front lines, you realize you don't have much different from your enemy, but the the captains and generals, and then the, the, the Kings and Queens and presidents of the countries that are fighting this war are so removed from the far lines or from the front lines that they, 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 vilify the enemy because that's what they need to do to get their citizens on board with such a terrible war
1: yeah but Uh, on the other side like if they were so committed to not fighting like if every soldier lays down their arms then there's not going to be a war right i mean like how's every soldier gonna lay down his arms yeah (laughs) they did on christmas just pretend every (laughs) day (laughs) is Uh, I just thought it was a little cheesy that he dwelled yeah. on for so long, but
0: anyway, I liked. I I guess maybe not the end end, but I thought like the the uh, about sixty percent into the book. So like, all right, so he talks about he sets up this argument about Hobbes and Rousseau. Are we are humans nat- naturally good or naturally bad? And then he goes into those experiments we talked about the the Stanford prison exer- experiment and the Milgram shock machine, and he ch- kind of says how those miss the target. And also how the media played those up because the results were so tantalizing for um, uh, then news. Have... Tantalizing. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> tantalizing. I don't know. Yeah. Between the word. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so he debunks those ex- um, experiments. And then he talks about um, why good people turn bad when he was talking <laughs> about Nazis. The bystander yeah. effect. Yeah. He talked about that too. Um where the death of this one a woman named Kitty in New York City in the 60s, where she was screaming for help and the, the whole apartment building basically hurt her, but no one called the police until it was too late. But that was kind of... Uh, he kind of said that was misreported as well. Um, but what I was getting into was the um, the new, real, uh, new realism, where he says... That, and he talks about the power of intrinsic motivation. And he talked about how um, basically people, how people uh, interact with each other affects how those other people behave. So he had, there was this experiment where there were a bunch of ordinary rats and and the scientists labeled half of them as gifted rats and half of them as doll rats. And volunteers would come in and people would take a rat and put it in a maze. And the, the, the ordinary rats labeled as gifted outperformed the ordinary rats labeled as doll. And they did that because he thought, how is that possible? Well, the, the volunteers coming in, if they if they thought the rats were gifted, they would treat them better just in the way they held them and maybe talked to them. And, and then the rats took that and performed better. If the doll rat, if the volunteer took a doll rat and maybe, you know, didn't care how they handled it the doll rat would not perform as well. And this was duplicated on like kindergartners or some, or some other experiment where if teachers like are encouraged students in a way that saying that you are neat, then their desks would be more more orderly or something like that. And I just found that interesting.
1: Yeah. So your takeaway from that is that a good way of like communicating with like younger people especially is kind of just reaffirm the behavior you want them to kind of emulate exactly and i feel like that is something that i think so many people
0: disregard Mm -hmm. think that think that kids are inherently good at math or good at reading or good at sports and they're or they're not good in something else and it's totally up to their individual performance and not anything in their environment or what adults are telling them you know and i think You know, and I am fascinated by just early childhood in general, especially like being born and then into your until about like 10. I think I think like those early years are so important that I think we fail to comprehend that sometimes as adults, because adults are so concerned with adult things in the adult world, but they fail to recognize what the world can be like for children and how our influence on that.
1: Yeah, I think so much of our personality is like developed in those early years. Um, right. But you can definitely go too far in the other direc- direction with that kind of parenting, just like oh, everything you do is perfect. You're the perfect. Well, yeah,
0: I'm not. <laughs> come on,
1: Tim. I know. You always have to rain on my parade, man. No, I know. Sorry. I'm
0: just, yeah. I'm trying to make it rain. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and then he uh, he also talked about. Um, I like the part about, um, kids need more playtime and he that, talked about that
1: part. I did like, actually. Okay, yeah.
0: good, good.
1: Cause yeah. I agree with
0: that. Yeah. He talked about like, um, basically first he talked about this, um, healthcare, um, provider in the Netherlands, I think, which is, was like employee run and, and very low management and low overhead and just let the, the, the people that are the nurses and the therapists like on the ground treating patients ha- help them make the decisions that work best for them and not have this overarching umbrella of management that takes up uh, time and resources and it doesn't know what's really going on because they're not on the ground. And then he also segues that chapter into the chapter about kids need more playtime and how there's a school in somewhere in Europe um, where they have very little structure, how the students... Are mingled um, uh, and jumbled up among age levels and 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 subjects and 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 all kinds of uh, kind of free reign where the kids come up with their own uh, lesson plan, so to speak, and their coaches there to help kind of guide them in in their studies to f- study whatever interests them. And then, um, yeah, I like the junk playground too, where someone just made it, had a playground full of like old cars and other scrap stuff and kids were
1: allowed free reign. Yeah. So. That reminded me of like a kind of like a Montessori school as mm-hmm. from what I know about those is that you have a lot of autonomy as a kid and you kind of like, you know, can have more independence in, in terms of what you're learning. And, um, and also the junk playground reminded me of, uh, have you heard of this place in, I think it's St. Louis, the city museum. It's so cool. Yeah. It's like, all this, like, scrap metal and, like, um, like a hollowed-out airplane. And it's basically, mm-hmm. like, a playground, like, you know, for kids and adults, too. And, um, yeah, it's really neat. I, I recommend huh. checking that out at some so point. What it,
0: so, like, they just
1: have stuff you can interact with there? Yeah, so it's, like, part indoors, part outdoors. There's, like, um, slides, and then there's, like, all this stuff. And it, it seems all from, like, recycled metal or uh, scraps and stuff. It's very, like... Artistic and creative, the way it's laid out. Yeah, cool. Yeah, St. Louis, huh? All right, good yeah, for them. City Museum. Um, I will say though, even though I like that chapter generally, I mm-hmm. wrote a note that I said uh, he starts getting really scattered towards the end because he starts talking about communism, about basic income, about children playing, and I wasn't convinced about all the stuff on communism too. I don't know what he's getting <laughs> at there. <laughs> right. Well, I think he was talking about
0: how communism has a bad rap because it's been uh basically
1: labeled as like anti-american yeah but like did you i don't know i mean do you find his arguments convincing about that i don't think no i mean let's be real like i i do agree my main criticism
0: of this book is that i would say that it does seem to uh like he's going down one train of thought and then he brings in the other ones from before and something else too and it's like so I, I feel like sometimes he's, like, trying to mash everything together sometimes when
1: it doesn't fit. Yeah, and this is the last negative thing I'll say, but he's, <laughs> like, and then, like, in this other book we read where he's, like, as reference in Chapter 7, as my, <laughs> in Chapter 4, <laughs> as I proved to you. It's, like, dude, just freaking write, you know, like, mm-hmm. all these, like, extra sentences that are... This just guy wasn't crazy. as bad as that Doom Loop book. That yeah, doom loop book the, the was doom bad. Loop. Yeah. That, I mean, no, not no. The doom loop
0: book, book. The doom loop. The doom loop book was good overall, but he
1: used that a lot. He was like, "See chapter this. See chapter that." Oh, but what's what's the point of that as a reader? Are you jumping to that chapter? Oh, he said, "See this here." Like it's just extra like fluff sentences. Uh, I think it's to remind you that this
0: is some something that we talked about earlier. Remember. Because like sometimes That's people don't read piece. books that fast. So like if, if like we read this book in a month, but like if people are picking it up and then reading a chapter every every month, they're not going to get through it for a year.
1: And so maybe they need that reminder that like oh yeah they did talk about that. It it almost feels like an academic like paper to me, like mm-hmm. writing for a teacher. <laughs> like see section two a as referenced in my prior. You know what yeah. I mean? That's a good point because
0: I think this guy is more of an act uh, academic type journalist and then that guy that did the doom doom loop was like a pure academic so like yeah I, you may be onto something like nonfiction books can definitely come off as academic pretty quickly it's and a I, small thing it's kind of a pet peeve i but, mean yeah. yeah but like we all have pet peeves, you know so of- <laughs> <laughs> yeah you have enough for both of us <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so like so did this, this book didn't convince you at all? Like you didn't. Uh,
1: yeah. Let me just think through like generally what I liked again, um, you know, being skeptical, skeptical about those popular psychology studies was good. Uh, skeptical about Lord of the Flies and the impact something like that had on our culture. Um, those things I think were good, but generally I just think he's cherry picking. He's, uh, you know, glossing over the bad stuff and just a little too scattered for me. So I'm somewhere in the middle, but I, I don't know. What do you think? Oh, I mean, I I like the book a lot. I had, I
0: mean, I think there's going to be things that I think about this book um, throughout the next couple of years when I hear something in the news or, or something else that I read. I think it's going to, like, I remember, what was that, uh, that Robert something or other book we read a while ago? You picked it. Before oh, the you... Laws of Human Nature. Laws of Human Nature by Robert Greene? Yes. That book I remember reading because mm-hmm. you made made us read it. <laughs> but I I liked it and I remember thinking back to it throughout the the the, the 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 year after I read it. I don't think about it nearly as much as I used to. Um but I think this book will humankind I think will be a similar book, one that trigger memories when I think of something else um, for the next year or so, which I think will be good. Um, and I think you know, you know, like I said, I'm a I'm a believer in the positivity or the positive aspect of human nature. So um, this one was right up my alley. Um, but so, like, is there anything like? Like, he came up with 10 rules to live by at the end of the book. Like, did any of those struck a chord with you or
1: it's something you think you might carry with you? Yeah, and that's actually a pretty good list, I think. And we can run through it real quick if you want. Yeah, sure. Um, how about I read the first five, you read the next five? All right. And then we can jump into which ones we like. Sure. and whatnot. not? Sure. So, okay, one through five. Uh, so he says, when in doubt, assume the best. Uh, number two, think in win-win scenarios. Number three improve the world ask a question number four temper your empathy train your compassion and five try to understand the other even if you can't understand number six love your own
0: as others love their own seven avoid the news eight don't punch nazis nine come out of the closet
1: don't be ashamed to do good and ten be realistic Okay, wait. I was reading the list on Reddit, so maybe I didn't have the right. <laughs> no, <laughs> you, they, they were close enough. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. So basically,
0: like, I mean, some some of them I think are better than others. Like, don't don't punch Nazis was like a specific story where uh, this one town where some famous Nazi is buried, mm-hmm. neo Nazis would meet there every year. And at first the town resisted like them meeting there and there would be fights and stuff break out. And then eventually the town like created like a, a a fun, like a fundraiser walk for Mm -hmm. the neo-Nazis. So the neo-Nazis would do this walk for every mile. The neo-Nazis would march through the town. They would raise so much money or whatever. So they, they turned it into a good thing and then they tried to outreach to the neo- Nazis. Like you show their humanity. And that's, and that's another part of this book where it's like, if you have two sides that are, against each other like foes mm-hmm. the best way to convert them like if you're trying to like neo-nazis trying to see for them to see their the air in their ways or they he used the example of the uh, Colombian uh, a rebel group FARC down I think it was Colombia or Venezuela yeah I mean, Colombia yeah Colombia where they tried to do ad campaigns to help the FARC rebels come back to their families and so it's it's about understanding like in this whole book is about understanding that other people are just as human as you are they may be misguided sometimes or have their own errors and and flaws but they are still human so we still need to be able to identify the humanity in others and recognize that and like this one that one of his r- rules love your own as others love their own you know you love people unconditionally in your life and you know that no matter you know that terrible guy at work that you can't stand. He's got people in his life that love him unconditionally, and that he loves him unconditionally. So everybody has that, at least somewhere. You know, any other other rules? That you yeah. Like well,
1: just to go off that, I think oh, the sure. message is good. Like, you know, reaching out to people's common shared humanity. I wonder if my perspective skewed just from the kind of media I consume, or like, <laughs> like well, the well. Yeah, I was just gonna say this podcast I listened to recently, like, just talks about this guy who has like sociopathic tendencies and is always manipulating people. And I think it's the people he's manipulating are those that want to believe the best in people, and so they're kind of vulnerable and, and caught off guard. So I feel like you know sometimes you got to have your guard up, you got to be you know suspicious of people's motives, but generally believe the best of most people, right? All right, a couple things. My goodness.
0: <laughs> so first of all, what do you do and listen to podcasts about sociopaths? Like that's
1: just Okay, uh, there's some good ones out there. I think it's Wondery or Gimlet, um, Dirty John was one. Um, there was one about the guy's therapist who was, like, manipulating him. I forget what that was called. Oh, my but God. No, there. I mean, you, there's, like, some bad people out but, there, Brian. But you got to realize, Tim, that those are
0: on a podcast because they are so sensational. That's not the norm. Yeah. And so true. that... I, that I think is one thing to understand is even, even when you digest the daily news that you got to understand that it is not the norm. 95 to 99% of humans throughout the world are having an average day today. You know, it's that 5% that are doing stupid shit or,
1: or having a bad day that the news focuses on, you know? Yeah, that's fair. And, and, I think you you make fun of me for being on something like TikTok, but, you know, I scroll through there and I see, like, 10 funny videos in a row of people just, like, doing something silly or, like, you know, people always complain about the news not showing, like, the happy side of things, and then it's, like, you see, like, that stuff, too. Oh, well, that's just your TikTok algorithm. Yeah. You got a good... Yeah.
0: You got a happy TikTok algorithm. Just, I'm surprised your TikTok isn't full of sociopaths, like your podcasts. Yeah, my phone's probably <laughs> listening to me, so it's. I'll start tweaking. But yeah, so, but you know, it's it's a it's about taking everything with a grain of salt. And then he would, the author would also argue that you don't have to have your guard up. It's better to unilaterally trust everybody, and then get burned once or twice, than to have your guard up all the time and not be able to trust anybody.
1: Yeah. Okay. I generally agree with that. I would just say like. There are instances where the times of getting burned can be really bad. But I would <laughs> I would I say scared. that if you're getting burned by the same person,
0: mm-hmm. that's that's a different scenario. That's that's where you got to understand that that person is having issues that mm-hmm. you cannot trust them at that time, at this time, you know. Right. And that's not, and unfortunately, that happens sometimes. Um, I have a friend that I used. I grew up with since first grade and now lately he's been untrustworthy I can't quite believe things he tells me anymore and it's been very frustrating but um I still talk to him when I can but it still hurts at times but but yeah so there's there's instances when you do have to you're gonna call him out on the the podcast I'm not (laughs) I'm not saying his name he doesn't listen you know who you are yeah (laughs) 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 <laughs> the thing is he might not i don't know but um yeah but um yeah any of the other, other rules you want to go over um, i liked his ask more questions oh one thing i thought interesting was at one point during the book the author talks about we have
1: too much empathy did you remember that part of the book too much empathy um i remember him mentioning that but i forget some of the details yeah <laughs>
0: I kind of do too, because it kind of just turned me off, and I was just kind of zoning out when I was reading the rest. It was, I think, it was about like how we have too much empathy for like uh, people who are suffering, so then we vilify anybody that is causing that suffering. Anyway, yeah, but I don't know, but but I I don't think so. In the moment, in the middle of the book, when he talks about we have too much empathy, it turned me off. And I, I found that, I found that chapter struggle, uh, I struggled with that chapter, but then later at the end, when he, it, when he talks about his 10 rules to live by, he re, he, I think does a better job of explaining. He is talking about the strict definition of empathy, which is the ability to understand and, and share the feelings of another normally in a, in a worse situation. And he contrasts that with compassion which is compassion is to sympathize, pity, and concern for the suffering and or misfortune of others. So pure empathy, but by this author's standards, is just putting yourself in that uh, a person, other person's position where you're, you, ha- you take, feel their suffering as they are suffering. And that makes that causes stress because suffering is stressful. And he says that we need to have less empathy and more compassion. And, and that then it finally clicked for me is that I always, I always, uh, I pride myself in my empathy. I think I am a very empathetic person, but what I'm realizing now is I am compassionate. I, you know, empathy is you can put yourself in the other person's shoes. And then he, the author was saying that when people use so much empathy they get stressed, they have, they have headaches, they get worn down, they feel the weight of the world is like on them. But mm-hmm. when we practice compassion, we can, we can hopefully see ways where something we can, we can enact policies or do things better to help people out. And that gives us a, a feeling of like, like, if we have compassion, then we might volunteer or donate or do some other good deed. And that actually, you know, increases our, elevates our mood and make us feel better. You know, and that was one big thing that I, that's going to be my big takeaway from this book.
1: Yeah. So the lesson was temper your empathy, train your compassion. Yeah. Um, The fourth one. And yeah, I agree with that. I think to be empathetic, I don't know, it, it can also like as a corollary be draining, right? If you're feeling everybody's pain in the world and, and that kind of thing, right? But compassion, I guess the connotation or the contrast he's making is that it's more kind of distance uh, between what you have empathy for and that, I don't know what you were saying basically. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: And I, I, I feel like, so I think that's a good
0: way of like saying like he, during the middle of the book, when he talked about it, it didn't quite hit the mark for me, but then later when he revisited it, 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 it coalesced in into a better um, thought in my own mind. And so that was helpful that he reiterated that in a different way. So, yeah. You ready to do writing yeah. time? I am. I just have one quote to say first. Oh,
1: right. Go for
0: it. This is my only quote. It's about the school. That school where kids are are allowed to come up with their own study plan and everything. Uh, I think it was the Agora School in Belgium, I think, or Netherlands. But then, um, this is a quote from the book. Uh, the author quotes, says, It's like the philosopher Ivan Ilyich said decades ago. School is the advertising agency which makes you believe that you need the society as it is. How do you interpret that? School, our K-12 through educational system, teaches children that society functions. That the way society functions is a foregone conclusion, and you have to accept it as it is because that's how the world works. That's how things have always been done. And all these other cliches statements that people make when something is they think is just too difficult or too um, pointless to try to change. When really there's so much more that can be done, and it, to improve society.
1: Yeah, I guess just as a broader point, like the educational system is part of this historical system that you know maybe just was just training better factory workers at a certain point, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if it's evolved a whole lot in the last few decades. Right. Blow it all up.
0: <laughs> That's a little <laughs> dramatic, do you think? I know. I know. <laughs> I'm saying that facetiously. Don't worry.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't, I feel like, you know, there's a good, there are good public schools and there are good oh, teachers yeah. and, you know. Oh, I'm not, very.
0: come on, Tim. I'm not saying the educational system in America is, failure a complete failure i'm just saying it could be better yeah that's fair come on that's fair that's fair yeah anyway all right you want to do rating time yep all right i'll go first because you always make me go first so because you you conform to my rating (laughs) (laughs) no i don't i never do you just think i do just kidding all right so i picked this book and I was looking forward to reading this book and I had high hopes for this book and it just fell short. Like, I mean, I really like I've been in a four. I'm giving it a it's a solid four. I'm going to recommend it to others because I think this book does a good job of reexamining those old so so sociology experiments that we talked about. And it reframes them in a way that says, hey, these aren't a foregone conclusions, you know, don't. You know, we have better data now that it's 2021 20, to examine how humans behave in society. So don't fall back to these all these experiments from the 60s and 70s. So I'm giving the humankind a hopeful history. Brian gives it a four. Tim, what's your rating?
1: Yeah, that's a good overview. I think it's time to kind of rethink the the narratives and outlook that people have, um, and not base it on like one book by you know this this author, or these couple of studies, um, but that being said, I feel like I had a lot of critiques throughout, such as you know glossing over things, cherry picking, kind of being repetitive. Um, I'm going to give it a three.
0: All right.
1: Yeah. That works.
0: But yeah, I, w- I was very glad I read it. Like I said, I'm going to recommend it to people because I think it's it's the ideas in the book are worth thinking about. If, if, if you... Like, but like, like you said, if you didn't agree with the authors, the way he focused on certain some things and not others, I think that's perfectly valid. But I think this is still topics to be examined and should be thought about more often.
1: Yeah, I'd say for the right person, it's worth reading. And general, like you know, his general message is definitely good for right. humanity, um, right? And hopeful. So.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. So Tim, what are we reading next time? Uh, next book is Innovation um and why it flourishes in freedom by Matt Ridley. Wow. Oh wait, no, it's called How Innovation Works. That's ah, right. there you go. Yeah. yeah. How Innovation Works. I
0: can't wait to read about another business motivational book. It's that not Tim a business
1: picks. motivational book. It's about the history of innovation. Oh wow. Okay. It'll be to right. staying in that human kind.
0: <laughs> oh, okay. We'll see. We'll see. But anyway, so go to our website, twoguysonebook.com, and you can see what we're reading after How Innovation Works in case you want to read something else. Um, Or you can comment on How Innovation Works and tell Brian that it's a great book that I definitely – I should not judge a book before I read it, which – I'm sure there's a saying for that, right? But yeah, so go to our website two guys one book and let us know how we're doing. Yeah. Anything else, Tim? You gotta put
1: Brian in his place. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's good. Until next time. Keep reading. Keep reading.